Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at core.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Jesus said to his disciples, I give you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. And from Luke 22, we read, within minutes, the disciples were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. More than three billion people claim to follow Jesus. But aside from a few verses, how many actually know what he taught? In fact, much of what people think Jesus taught, he never said. Jesus' message is not only life-changing, but world-changing. Join us as we study words that change the world, the message of Jesus. We began this series of messages on words that change the world, the message of Jesus five weeks ago for our Lenten study. And as we did, we began to look at what was the central focus of Jesus preaching and teaching. And we learned that was the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and what the world would look like if we allowed God to reign over us and we were seeking to do God's will. So the kingdom of God. The second week, we turned to the most influential and powerful sermon ever preached in human history, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. From there, we turned to the stories that Jesus told. He called them parables. We call them parables. And as we look at those parables, we looked at two in particular as, as really the most probably the most powerful, the most influential of all of his parables. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. Then we moved to John's gospel. And in John's gospel, we find Jesus speaks these I am statements. And there are seven specific statements we typically focus on in the I am sayings of Jesus. We turn to two of them and we looked at Jesus' words, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And we tried to understand what does that mean for us today? Now we come on this holy week to the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And we're gonna focus on the words that he spoke as he prepared for his death and as he was dying on the cross. If you knew you were dying in 24 hours, what would be the things you would say and how important and urgent would you feel in communicating those to your family or friends? That's how Jesus feels as he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. So I wanna remind you of what happens during that Holy Week. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday. The people are waving their palm branches. They think he's the king. The palm branches are signs of victory. As he comes in, they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us now or deliver us now. As he enters into the city of Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he overturns the money changers tables that are set up in the temple courts. He throws out all of those who are buying or who are selling, not buying, but selling things in the temple. And in the process, he infuriates the religious leaders who are receiving a portion of the proceeds of their sales. Monday, Jesus teaches in the temple courts. The crowds throng to him, but he continues to irritate, to really 
enraged the religious leaders. Tuesday, the same. Wednesday, the same. Thursday is the day of preparation. Everyone's been waiting for this. They bring their lambs to the priests at the temple who sacrifice the lambs, who slaughter the lambs, return them to the people who roast them for the evening meal, the Passover, which begins after sunset that night. Jesus sends two of his disciples to prepare the meal. They take the lamb to the priests. They then prepare it to be roasted. They prepare the rest of the meal in an upper room where Jesus and the disciples would gather for the last supper that night after sunset. And that's where we pick up our story of the final words of Jesus. Now, the last supper, of course, is a Passover meal for Jesus and his disciples. It commemorates God's delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus is gonna transform the meaning of that sacred meal. We'll talk about that in a few moments when we prepare to have Holy Communion. For now, I want you to know that John's gospel is the one that tells us most of what happens that night. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have 17 to 25 verses on the Last Supper. John has 155 verses spread over five chapters. And the first thing that we learn, Jesus says many things at the Last Supper in John's gospel, but the first and most important thing that he says is what we find in John chapter 13. He says this, I give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. So he's telling them, I'm setting an example for you. I'm showing you what love looks like. I want you to practice this kind of love towards one another. That's the first time he says something. John chapter 15, a chapter and a half later, he says this, this is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. Once more, he says, I'm setting an example. I'm gonna show you what love looks like. I want you to love each other in the same way. And then the very next line, he says, no one has greater love than to give up one's life for his friends. And the very next day, that's exactly what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna show them what looks like, what love looks like on the cross, what that wondrous love really looks like. And then finally, one more time in chapter 15, verse 17, I give you these commandments so that you can love each other. Listen, three times in that last 24 hours, three times at the last supper alone, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, this is what it's all about. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it's gonna take to heal the world. This is what I'm expecting of you. This is what it means to be my disciples. Love one another. And remember, this isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not, a, not even a deep friendship. It is a willingness to do what's best for the other person, to consider the needs of the other before your own. It's a willingness to look and say, how can I build you up? How can I bless you? Even though you don't deserve it. Maybe you've wronged me, but I'm still gonna love you. Jesus tells us that we are to love one another. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our neighbors. We are to love. This is what it means to be his disciples. And again, agape is the Greek word. It is a selfless act of kindness or seeking the best for the other person. This is what Jesus asks of us. And this is how the world is healed. This is what it looks like when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, the central ethic of the kingdom of God. As I was preparing this part of the sermon, I was thinking about music. I often am listening to music. And last week we talked about the Sounds of Silence, a song that came out of the 1960s. I was thinking of a song that was written the year that I was born, 1964. It was recorded by several different groups, but in 1967, it was recorded by the Youngbloods. It was the Summer of Love. Didn't get a lot of airplay that year, but certainly at, you know, the folks who were associated, the hippies associated with the Summer of Love, they came to know this song. It was a folk song. And, uh, and then in 1969, one of the most polarized years in American history, even more polarized than we are today, the National Conference of Christians and Jews said, you know what, we need to remind people of who we are and what it means to be human. And they picked the Youngblood song. And it was released as a public service announcement. And in the process of that, radio stations across America began to field calls, asking them to play that song again. And what we have for you is one verse of that song. And by the way, there were people who thought, this is really a gospel song. 
It's a gospel song because it takes the central message of Jesus at the Last Supper and it turns it into music, but it was more than that. There's also a line in there, it's really interesting in the, yard ver- or in the, in the uh, Youngblood's version that says, the one who left us here returns for us at last, pointing to Christ who left us here to do his work, who will come back one day. Anyway, we put a few pictures of what we think that love looks like here at Resurrection to the song. Just one verse, take a look. If you hear the song I sing, you will understand. Listen. You hold the key to love and fear, all in your trembling hand. Just one key unlocks them both. It's there at your is a gospel song and it's speaking Jesus' central ethic for the kingdom of God. And what I love about the pictures that our team put together with that is these are ways as a church, we've been striving, striving to do this over the last four years, striving three and a half, four years once COVID hit. And we've been doing this for 30 years, but striving to say, we are here to love. This is who we are. We are the body of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus in the world. And our task as individual Christians and together is to love one another love our enemies, love our neighbors, love each other. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And that's just a little bit of what love looks like. I wanna ask you, do you remember his commandment that night as he was preparing to be arrested? Are you following through with it? Are you loving one another? All right, we turn then to the synoptic gospels, to Luke's gospel. And here we find a second thing that Jesus says we'll focus on at the last supper. He is, while he's sitting with his disciples, Luke tells us this, within minutes, the disciples were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. They still think he's gonna be a king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Which of us is the greatest? They're asking each other. They're bickering with each other, but Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not gonna be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. In Mark's gospel, the same, uh, the same idea shows up in a different location in Mark's gospel. The disciples are also bickering or arguing. There's uh, two of them that have secretly gone to Jesus to say, can we be on your right hand and on your left hand uh, as you enter into your kingdom, as you take control? And Jesus says this to his disciples, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the son of man came, that's how he refers to himself. For the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in our world, there's a whole lot of people who desire to be great, right? And, and, and being great, if we understand Jesus' definition is super, that's fantastic. I wanna be great according to Jesus' definition. 
But that's not how most of the time our society sees greatness. It sees it in terms of power and wealth and control and, and influence. And, and in the process of doing all that, we got our heads really messed up. And we, we talk about countries and, and today the battles that are going on around our world for influence in other parts of the world. And you know, in all of this, we end up bringing pain. And what Jesus says is the way to life and the way to create the kingdom, you know, to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is to adopt the mentality of a servant, to recognize that the goal isn't to puff myself up and make myself, you know, somebody who's esteemed by everyone else, but instead to come along and to be a humble servant. And there's a transformation that happens in our lives somewhere along the way where we go from wanting to be recognized as the best to wanting to be a humble servant, meeting the needs of other people, practicing love in essence. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an example from, uh, well, from the Second World War and the Holocaust, made into a film in 1993. The man's name was Oscar Schindler. And maybe you saw the film, a lot of folks heard of it, but never saw it. Uh, but Oscar Schindler, he was a playboy. Uh, he was a flanderer. He, was a, he loved his drink. He loved his cigars. Um, and he had a great desire to be wealthy, to be affluent, and to, uh, and to have greatness in the way the world defined it. And he, he was uh, in Czechoslovakia. He had started a business that had failed. He ends up, he's a member of the Nazi party. He joins the Nazi party. He's a Catholic, joins the Nazi party. He becomes a spy for the Nazis for a time as a way of gaining influence. Like he's gonna do whatever it takes to gain influence and to make it to the top, to claw his way to the top. And then he realizes that there's money to be made with all of these Jews that have been placed in concentration camps, in the prison camps, that, that if he could start a factory in Poland, he could take advantage of free labor. Well, that line his pockets with money. And so he started up, he bought an old factory, he started up uh, making, you know, making things for the Nazis. Actually, I think it was porcelain uh, dinnerware or something. And, uh, and he is given permission as a Nazi to be able to have you know, the, the workers or the people from the prison camp come and work in his factory. But somewhere along the way, something happens to him. He becomes changed. He has a moral conversion. And he begins to see the suffering of other people. And he sees the inhumanity uh, just rain down upon the Jewish people. And he sees their humanity as he works with them. And he decides he has to do something. And so you may remember, he ends up cultivating, you know, uh, favor with the Nazis as a way of making sure that he can rescue as many of the Jewish people as possible. At one point, it becomes clear that the Jews are gonna be put to death and he wants to save as many as he can. And, and so he's convinced the Nazis he needs to move his factory to another place. And he wants to take all of his free labor with him to this other location. And while he's working on this, he knows he has a limited number of people he can take and he's gonna rescue them. He's gonna save them. And he has to prepare a list with the names on it of all of those that he can save. And what you see in this clip from the 1993 film Schindler's List is where Oscar Schindler and his partner, his business partner, now a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, refugee, a Jewish prisoner in the camp, are working together to assemble Schindler's List. Take a look. How many? How many? 850, give or take. Give or take what, Stern? Give or take what? Count them. How many? I didn't. You can finish that page. What did Gerd say about this? You just told him how many people you needed and you're not buying them. 
for each of these names. If you were still working for me, I'd expect you to talk me out of it. It's costing me a fortune. Finish the page and leave one space at the bottom. life and absolute good. Here's this unlikely hero, right? And he ends up uh, having, you know, spent his entire fortune, everything he'd made to be able to rescue 1,100 plus Jews from certain death. He's buried in Jerusalem. I was by his grave not long ago. And, uh, and the only former Nazi to be buried in Jerusalem, Oscar Schindler, and as we think about him, I'm reminded, you know, he's paying a ransom. He's buying the lives of these people. And in the gospels, Jesus says in Mark's gospel that he's gonna give his life as a ransom for many. He's gonna die so that we might live. He's gonna die so that, so that we might know that our lives have value and worth. He's gonna die so that we might see that he's paid a great price for us. So as the apostle Paul would say, you were bought with a price. Jesus paid that price for you to say you have value and worth and you belong to me. I have purchased you. And I love what Paul says in Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. And so we find in this second saying of Jesus at the last supper, this call to be servants, to see others' humanity, to not strive to build yourself up. But if you humble yourself, God lifts you up. And to remember that what it means to be really human, to be really great, is to be a servant of other people. Do you remember that? All right, Jesus leaves the Last Supper that night. It's dark, it's, it's, oh, it's well past dark, it's maybe midnight. And he takes his disciples with him across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there you'll remember, he tells them to pray and he takes Peter, James and John a little further and says, you pray here. And Jesus goes a little further and he's filled with agony. He's in anguish. Luke tells us he's perspiring drops of blood. He throws himself on the ground. He cries out to his father. And you'll remember that he says, father, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering from me. And then you remember his words after that. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. One of the great prayers of all time that's meant to shape our lives. In fact, would you say that with me? Let's put it on the screen again. Not my will, but thy will be done. Would to God that that might be our prayer every day. In fact, that is in essence our prayer. When we pray the Lord's prayer every day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed this when he knew it would cost him his life. Some of you pray the Wesley covenant prayer every day. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what you will, right? This is the prayer of a Christian. Here I am, not my will, but thy will be done. Oh God, Jesus teaches us that prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Shortly after that, he's arrested, betrayed by, with a kiss by his friend Judas, taken to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council who have a trial by night. They sentence him to death for blasphemy. The next morning, he's taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. They accuse him of claiming to be a king and Pontius Pilate ultimately, after torturing Jesus, having him whipped and beaten, humiliated, sentences him to die, sentences him to die for the crime of raising up an insurrection. 
Now we find Jesus, according to Mark chapter 15, verse 25, we find it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. Luke 23, 44 says it was three in the afternoon when Jesus died. So during those six hours from the time he was crucified until the time he expired on the cross, there are seven statements he makes. And I wanna briefly remind you of those statements and we'll focus on just a couple of them before we're finished. Looking down from the cross at his mother and his disciple, his disciple, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, well, he loved all of them, but the one that had a close connection with him, Jesus said to John and to his mother, and would you say these words with me? Behold your son, behold your mother. And with these words, he entrusts the care of his mother to his beloved disciple. Now, next we find that Jesus was looking at all of those who were hurling insults at him while he hung on the cross. And Jesus prayed, will you say this with me? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Two bandits were crucified on either side of Jesus. And while one hurled insults at Jesus, the other one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And would you say with me what Jesus said to the bandit on the cross who pleaded for mercy? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke tells us this happened about noon. Three more hours passed and near the end of his suffering, the one who promised living water cried out, I say it with me, I am thirsty. Then we find Jesus in pain and agony at 3 p.m., just moments before his death, praying once more a Psalm, Psalm 22, one. And he says these words, would you say them with me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we read in, in uh, Luke's gospel that Jesus prayed once more another Psalm, despite his agony and his feeling of being just abandoned by God. He prays these words. I'd like for you to pray them with me. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then finally in John's gospel, just before he breathes his last, he says these words, say them with me. It is finished. I wanna close by considering several of these statements. We can't consider all seven, but I do want you to consider with me several of these statements. The first one is the statement that he, really it's a prayer that he prays as he's hanging on the cross, looking at those who are torturing him to death. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's the most remarkable thing. Jesus teaches about forgiveness all the time in the gospels. He teaches us in the Lord's prayer that we're to forgive, you know, pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says that forgiveness is essential. He not only gives forgiveness to others, but he asks forgiveness from us. He asks us to be willing to forgive other people. And as he's talking about forgiveness, the word in Greek means to let go, to let go of the anger, the pain, the right to retaliation or retribution. He's calling us to live this kind of life. Imagine how the world would be changed if we practiced forgiveness on a regular basis as individuals, as communities, as societies to practice forgiveness. This is what Jesus is going to show us as he's hanging on the cross. He looks at those who are torturing him, humiliating him, spitting upon him, insulting him, who are insisting on his death and he prays for his father to forgive them. He's offering himself as an atoning sacrifice. He's offering himself and saying, I give you my all, Father, but I'm gonna give you my all asking that you forgive these people here on earth. I loved how Tony Campolo once preached here at Resurrection. And he said, the way he pictured this when Jesus is hanging on the cross is that he, he was looking down through 2000 years of history and he looked right into your eyes and he prayed for you. And he gave himself for you praying, Father, forgive them, forgive him, forgive her. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I've had people say to me before, how can God possibly forgive me? Or I'm not really sure I, you know, I can be forgiven or that God really would forgive me. But you have to understand Jesus offering himself 
as an atoning sacrifice, as, as a way of saying, I'm giving myself for this person. Father, forgive them. Do you think his father would turn him down? Do you think his father would say, no, 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 your death on the cross is not enough to cover the sin of this person. And of course, the father would never say that to the son, which is why we can say when we confess our sins that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or as far as the East is from the West, so far shall the Lord remove our sins from us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I've been uh, reading or really probably better uh, described as listening to one of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. He wrote three across the course of his life. And in, in this autobiography I'm listening to, what was amazing was he speaks a lot about his master who, Thomas Ald, who, who was at times cruel and who, who, you know, there was just a lot of pain that he experienced as a young person, as a slave. And then he escaped slavery. And then there was somebody, some folks in Europe after hearing him speak, who ransomed him, who paid the price, 150 British pounds sterling, something like $26,000 today, to set him free, to release him from the bond of slavery, even though he was an escaped slave. And then later on, he writes letters to his old master. Here's a photo of Franklin, Frederick Douglass and, uh, and a photo of the letter he wrote about this time to his old master, Thomas Ald. And in this, uh, he told him, I hate slavery, but I love you. It took him years to get to the point where he could say that. In 1877, Thomas Ald asked Frederick Douglass if he would come to his house for a visit. And Frederick Douglass came and stood by Thomas Ald's bedside and took his hand as Thomas Ald you know, spoke about Frederick Douglass. And as Frederick Douglass saw the humanity of this man and was able to forgive all the horrible things that he'd experienced at the hands of this master and the things he'd seen him inflict upon others, he showed grace which is exactly what Jesus is asking us to do towards one another, to receive his grace and to extend his grace. We find these words on the cross just before Jesus dies, six hours into his crucifixion. And he prays the prayer from Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.1 was written by King David. It expresses in its opening verse, the great sense of tragedy, the, the, the moments in our lives where things are so hard and God's, God's silence seems deafening, and, and his absence is deeply profound. And we wonder, where are you? And why are you not with me right now? And what happened to you? And how come you didn't show up? And, and all of the feelings we have when we're, when we're profoundly disappointed with God and we've, when we've experienced a great tragedy or pain. And this is what David prayed. And now this is what Jesus prays from the cross. These words again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's called the prayer of dereliction. And uh, dereliction means, you know, to be derelict in your duty means that you're not showing up. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. And here it sounds as though Jesus and David before him thought that God was derelict in his duty. Now, there are people who get really nervous about this verse that shows up in both Matthew and Mark's gospel. Luke doesn't have this verse, even though Luke had access to Mark's gospel, he doesn't record it in his gospel. John doesn't record it in his gospel because it made people uncomfortable. I think that's why they didn't record it. It made people uncomfortable to think that Jesus would feel so abandoned by his father that he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken Jesus? No, he had not forsaken him, but it felt that way to Jesus while he's hanging on the cross, six hours he's hanging there and in excruciating pain and all the insults that are coming his way. This is the only prayer that made sense probably at that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in Psalm 22, the verse goes on to say this, <clears throat> My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no 
rest. This week in the aftermath of the school shooting at Covenant School in Nashville, I saw a photo of Pastor Chad Scruggs, pastor of the church next door that sponsors the school, who lost his daughter who was nine years old, the age of my granddaughter, and a picture of him holding his little girl. And thinking, you know, what must you be feeling as a pastor? You've preached the gospel your entire life. You've told people about God's work in our lives. You know these stories. You know what Jesus said from the cross. But in that moment when your child is dead and the agony and the pain, I don't know what he prayed. But if it had been me, I would have been praying these words from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With my intellect, I might've remembered that God doesn't cause these terrible things to happen and that humans violate God's will when they do these things and that God grieves in the middle of the pain that we experience in our lives. But though I might've known it with my head, I wouldn't have felt it with my heart. There are people who look at Jesus saying this and they say, well, God was turning away because the wrath of the, you know, the, because the sins of the world were poured on Jesus and, 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 and God's righteousness couldn't look upon it. That is simply not true. This is Jesus feeling abandoned by God and God had not abandoned him. But there are times it feels that way. So as we look at these words, you know, and by the way, I saw a woman standing outside of uh, the school holding up a sign. And if you look closely at her face, this is a photo. If you look closely at her face, you can see, you know, she's holding up a sign, why, why? And you can see the agony in her face. These are the questions we ask at these moments. And here's what I think when I look at this moment and why I'm so profoundly grateful that this verse is included in Matthew and Mark's gospel because I think God wanted us to know in the moments when we feel abandoned that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, the I am understands what we're feeling. Perhaps he's trying to help us understand that God himself experiences the pain and brokenness in this world, that there are moments where, where things seem so dark, even to God. But Jesus, when we pray and we cry out, and, and I've had people say, you know, I, I cursed God in this moment. I, I, I feel, I know, I'm, you know, God must be angry with me. I'm like, no, he's not angry with you. Jesus is crying out from the cross, something so similar. And he's crying that out to let, it, let you know that it's okay for you to feel abandoned by God, but you are never really abandoned by God. Which is what we see in the final words of Jesus from the cross, or what I think would be, it, if not the final, the second to last words of Jesus from the cross. And that is where he cries out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. William Barclay, the great New Testament scholar and pastor, uh, he had at one point said that this verse, Psalm 36.1, I believe it is, Psalm 31.5, excuse me, that Psalm 31.5 was a line in the Psalms that Jewish mothers taught their children to pray before they went to bed at night. Mary is standing there at the foot of the cross. She hears her son crying out these words, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I want you to notice he has just prayed from Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the last word he's gonna pray is into your hands, I commit my spirit. I may feel abandoned by you, but I'm still gonna trust you. I may feel forsaken by you, God, but I'm still gonna trust you. I remember the words in the King James, I think it is of Job, one of the verses in Job that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And so the psalmist, there are lots of complaint psalms in the Bible, places where people felt forsaken by God. But after they articulated their lament or their complaint, they came right back in and said, and yet I will trust in your unfailing love. Where else can I turn but to you? And this is what Jesus does. In the process, he teaches us one more prayer that we might pray before we go to bed at night, when we're afraid, when we're anxious, when the world seems to be collapsing in all around us. Despite all of these things, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
That too is the prayer of a Christian. I wanna invite you to remember today these words of Jesus, these things that Jesus has told us that help us understand what it means to be human, what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes on earth as it is in heaven. I want us to remember that he called us to love one another, to practice agape. And in this, the world will know that we are his disciples when we actually practice selfless love. I want us to remember that Jesus called us to not seek to be served, but to serve just as he sought to be a servant and gave his life as a ransom for many. I want us to remember his words in the garden of Gethsemane when he's crying out in anguish, asking the father to take the cup from him. And then he says, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And I want us to remember these words that Jesus prays as he's hanging on the cross. When he prays, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When he cries out in agony and pain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet ends his struggle and enters into death with these words, into your hands, I commit my spirit. May those words of Jesus, some of the most powerful words ever uttered, shape your life and my life today. Let's pray. Oh God, how grateful we are that we have these words of Jesus from his final 24 hours. And we pray that those words might not just be heard by our ears, but be internalized in our hearts and form and shape who we are as human beings. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another, not to seek to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away. Lord, we do pray that your will, not ours, would be done. Lord, forgive us as you prayed on the cross, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. We ask, oh God, that in our darkest moments, you might help us to remember that you haven't really forsaken us, even though it may feel that way in the moment. And help us, oh God, that together we might commit our lives into your hands. All we are and all we have, we give to you. And Jesus, we accept your saving love and grace in your holy name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.